The Spin-Off Podcast Network. At Zed, we're all about moving with the times. And now it's time to be part of the climate change solution and move on from fossil fuels. As a company providing fuel to people all over the country, we also know we have a real opportunity to lead that change. We're committed to keeping Aotearoa moving by providing the right energy for everyone. We believe that innovation in fuel and how it's used can make a huge difference to our planet. Find out more at z.co.nz. The Fold is brought to you by O Media, making brands unmissable and public spaces better across Aotearoa. No mai hoki mai ki the fold e mihi nei ko Duncan Greve tokungua. Uh, my guest today is Simon Denny, uh, who is you know I was talking to a, a friend at basketball this morning who's well placed to know about this stuff. Um, who who said that he is probably New Zealand's most sort of successful or internationally successful living artist. Um, so. so this very much is in that kind of periodic "What Even Is" media uh, series that that I run on this podcast, um, you know, because I do think like, what is art if not the original mass media? It's it's these are objects that are scrutinised by, you know, ideally by a lot of people and and who try and figure out what what they're trying to say. Uh, Simon's a guy who I've got a lot of mutual friends with, but had never actually met until this morning when he came up to our studio. He lives in Berlin, um, even though he's from from Auckland. We actually went to the same school, uh, which will be sort of sick making for some of you. Uh, nothing I can do about that. Um, but I, I admire the way that he goes about his work. There's this sort of frisky, curious, ambivalent nature of it and just a, an extremely ambitious approach to the sort of scale, uh, complexity, the thinking um, that it involves. Um, his biography or a line from it, um, which came through his gallerist Michael Lett, says that he's an artist whose work explores the cultures and values behind some of the new technologies that are changing the world. Uh, that, you know, in a sentence summarises a lot of what I'm interested in too and what we touch on sometimes with The Fold. Um, Denny uses art to explore it rather than journalism. And... You know, while I get stressed out even thinking about art sometimes, I read this essay uh, in this book called Air Guitar a few years ago, um, which which compared art to basketball, forgive me this aside, and talked about that one of them was an obscure pursuit um, in sparsely attended halls at the start of the 20th century, and the other was this sort of giant mass spectacle that that impacted the world and that those two situations had essentially Im- inverted themselves by the end of the 20th century because one of them focused on rules changing the rules to make it more accessible whereas the other imposed rules to make it less accessible i'm sure you could pick a million holes in that thesis but there seemed to be something in how approachable uh Art and basketball were variously to to mass audiences. I hope I'm not being overly reductive to Walt Hickey's argument there, but I feel like the point the point is that I feel like what Simon's doing is almost the opposite. It is trying to take these huge sort of tectonic shifts in society that are being prompted by technology and drilling deep into them and then exploding them in a way that that makes them objects of mass fascination. 
So look, that that's basically the the theories that we explore. It's it's a really big a big long conversation about technology and how it informs his art and and the kind of really original and and ambitious thinking that that involves uh, goes through some of his big works that involve people like uh, Peter Thiel, the, the sort of investor, uh, libertarian, Bitcoin maxer, who, you know, who's also a New Zealand citizen, Kim.com, and particularly his, his new work, Optimism, which uh, opens today at the Auckland Art Gallery and involves, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of based on or, or jumps off from some patents filed by Rocket Lab and and the various kind of modern sort of techno-utopian sort of space-steading kind of uh, worlds that are visible through that. Uh, it's heady stuff, but I think, you know, I think if you listen, you'll find this actually very accessible, I think. And, and Simon's enthusiasm and level of knowledge and just deep fascination is really palpable in this talk. So, yeah, really, really enjoyed this one. Bit of a left turn, but uh, I think there's, there's a lot in it. So, yeah, this is uh, Simon Daddy on The Fold. Kia ora, Simon. Welcome to The Fold. Kia ora. I'm really excited to to get into all this. I wondered if you could start, though, by kind of thinking way back to when you first started being interested in technology and thinking about how you could incorporate it into your practice. Yeah. So I'm, I'm an artist. I grew up in Auckland, but I live in Germany. And, um, and that's kind of connected to my interest in technology, believe it or not, because I moved away to go to art school for the second time. Um, I first went to the University of Auckland, and then I moved away in 2007 to go to Germany to study art again. And um, when I did that, uh, it was a very 2007 was an important year for consumer tech because it was uh, the birth of mobile, with uh, the launch of the iPhone, and uh, and I took just one not so great laptop with me, um, and not very many clothes uh, when I moved away, and I found that my laptop um, was the most important item of you know, that I had in my whole life. And um, I was keeping in touch with friends on social. I was on MySpace a lot more than I had been pre previous to that. Um, and I was watching movies on there, consoling myself, uh, you know, with the dead time that I suddenly found myself with being away from friends. And, uh, but then I was also learning and researching and doing like art related stuff on there. And suddenly I was like, what the hell is going on? I'm so obsessed with this object. Um, and then I started to, I ran into some people who were studying uh at the same school at the same time. And they were all really interested in technology and technologists. And I started to think more about who was making this object and why they made it and why I could do this and not that. And um, and that was kind of the beginning of uh, rolling things into my practice. Um, I started looking backwards at artists and how they'd worked with technology in other moments, as well as the peers that I'd met, like what they were doing. Uh, so I started to look at artists that had worked on the internet when the internet first came up, like web-braced, browser-based art, and then also like TV art, uh, which is really interesting, like uh, like uh, art that was made in the 60s, 70s, and 80s for broadcast television, like specifically as as like broadcast as a medium. And then earlier and earlier, like modernism is like full of, you know, stories of artists grappling with how it feels to use technology as it emerges, you know. Um, I mean, because as you just pointed out, there is there's a sort of a lineage of, of – artists wrestling with technology, but at the same time, it did feel like you were early to recognize that, that 
you know, the technology or, or particularly the sort of technology enabled by the internet was going to be the kind of consuming socio-cultural, political uh, factor of, of our lifetimes. And I'm kind of curious about how the art world responded to that. You, you almost replaced a career-sized bet on, on, <laughs> on that in a way. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it was like, as I say, kind of 2007 onwards was a bit of an inflection point because for those of us who like to periodize things, that was the beginning of a kind of second generation of the consumer 2.0. web. Web 2, exactly. So social web, uh, user-generated content, um, you know, and uh, and that type of thing um, was like just starting to be really important. And like Google was suddenly very, everybody was looking at images through Google. And I just was like, it was affecting all of my peers so much directly that I was just like, yeah, there's so much here. Um, but yeah, I mean, it wasn't, you know, th there's an interesting history of art, if I can be very broad about it, where you know, artists have been dealing with media for a long time and new media. And there was a moment in the 70s where that kind of broke off into a kind of subgenre of art called new media art. And there was like a whole kind of history made from there, but it wasn't kind of the mainstream art anymore. And the mainstream art world, if I can, you know, categorize it like that, tended to shy away a little bit from looking at new media and new platforms. Um, and I think the Web 2.0 moment was a, was a moment when that kind of traditional art world couldn't look away anymore, you know? They were clearly selling JPEGs through emails, you know, uh, the, the commercial world was changing. Um, and also, like, uh, your social media profile was just so important to your stature among peers and friends, and it was clear that they had a relationship to, like, how you communicated your work as well. So I think that was a bit of an inflection point, but, yeah, there was also some tensions, you know? Huge amount of tensions, yeah. and that feels like where you have kind of um, built your... You know, your whole you at least spent the last like fifteen years kind of exploring those tensions, and even as you're talking, it feels like you're sort of nodding at the fact that these things aren't easily reduced into a binary of this is good or or this is bad. Yeah, which is a big part of what has made technology so sort of hard to deal with for the rest of us, because we're used to I think dealing with this kind of. Uh, or simplifying things, and this right. is almost like the most complex and, and hard to simplify element to it. You know that, that and what what you described in terms of artists selling art as JPEGs via via <laughs> email. You know, which like how did how did the sort of reducing art to something that can be kind of infinitely replicated and traded? Mm. Uh, you know. How, how did the art world, you know, from from your sort of position, mm. respond to you know that as a sort of a fundamental bedrock of uh, of the digital economy? Yeah, I mean, as I say, like at that time, like uh, email was like the big kind of you know <laughs> late game changer to the art profession, right? Instead of walking into a gallery and buying something, if that was the main way that people came into contact with work, very small shops uh, with very passionate people running them. Um, now those passionate people were sending emails with JPEGs in them, images of work rather than work itself, you know. And so that just changed the scale of things of how it was, uh, how things were sold. And then at the same time, art fairs were becoming a really big deal. And that was a place where sort of a one-shop, uh, one-stop shop, uh, kind of a trade fair environment. Um, these things had both existed for a long time, like selling art and photographs and letters had 
you know, existed for a while. And also like art fairs actually started in the 60s and 70s as well. But uh, but there was a kind of a velocity that was reached uh, in that Web 2.0 moment when it was kind of, you know, clearly the main way that things were happening in a different way. And then that later accelerated into Web 3 and this kind of much more direct, literally selling JPEGs uh, as as art, um, which which I think happened in the last five years where there was this NFT boom, right? And uh, that so was we, something else again. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Because like, you know, I, I personally found that a really interesting moment yeah. and, and like that the, there was sort of, a complexity to it that was was extremely reduced by the sort of sneering caricature of how it was framed at times. Yeah, and I and we're because the fundamental of the idea that if we're going to move our whole society online, it would mm -hmm. be cool if there was a way of compensating artists for creating their work as right. they move into that environment. That didn't seem so offensive to me, even though that was the general global response. I wondered if you could talk about your reaction to it because you also participated in a way that, in, as is typical for you, contained a sort of an ambivalence or at least a, uh, a kind of some good jokes about technology. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I was I was very aware of crypto when it came up in the in the early tens because my friends were using it to buy drugs. You know, that was like the first uh, first time Bitcoin came up for me. And then when I started to talk to technologists, as I started to become more embedded with my own artistic research and, and technologist communities, I, I get to know founders of companies, um, they were talking about Bitcoin a lot. And there were like stories about how transformative it could be in so many different ways at that time. And so right at that moment, I started to pay attention to artists who were experimenting with that as a new way of working, right? So there were people attaching um, Bitcoin, uh, you know, they would attach a JPEG to a Bitcoin token and say, hey, this is a this is a linked item and you can track this um, and, and sell it. It's sort of proto-NFT, but it was very, very small and hardly any people understood it. And, um, and then I kind of like a few more people kind of came in successive hype waves. Crypto-like technology often does, grows in huge waves of, of hype. And people are super interested for like a, a, you know, a couple of months or a year. And valuations go through the ceiling and then they crash again and everybody looks stupid who even tried to participate before. And kind of artistic involvement in crypto also did that. Um, so the, in the kind of second wave of crypto around 2018, um, some people I met were really interesting in the way they were working with crypto. So I, I met a, a group called Terra Zero who were working with um, trying to give forests their own economy by making them autonomous in the fact that you could kind of like have an automated contract that said that the trees owned their own income if they were like felled down. So a, a, an industrial forest could own its own kind of earnings. That's crazy. Yeah. I thought that was a really great idea. And then, you know, some other other more kind of game-like applications were coming up. This thing called CryptoPunks and CryptoKitties, these kind of emerged, which um, which were kind of early experiments, actually free to mint, but then uh, like collectibles kind of gathered um, uh, value very quickly. Um, and with CryptoKitties, it was really funny because uh, the programming meant that you could, if you bought two, you could make them breed, and then you they would produce a third token, uh, which was kind of their own um, their offspring. You know, so it had it a Tamagotchi. Like, it was, yeah, and it wasn't as valuable, but you know, like yeah. the, the whole cultures that developed around them seemed to to someone like you to be a really interesting thing to yeah. scrutinize and participate in. Right. Right, and then so so that was that happened, and it was very interesting, but still very small, right, and actually not so much money in it. And then twenty 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 one happened, 
And that was a whole another thing. You know, there was this very public sale of this very expensive artwork that somebody paid a lot of money for at an auction is house. The people, exactly. And, you know, suddenly when the auction houses came in, uh, everybody in the art world turned around and was like, hang on a minute. How many millions for what JPEGs? You know, like this, that's not a thing. Yeah. You know? And um, and then then there was kind of like a frenzy where a lot of people started getting on board. And so I started to do some experiments at that time. Uh, I had met uh, one of the founders of um, of the emergent text to image AI programs. Uh, the guy that would work on um, what became Midjourney. Um, I met him through a friend, and he was testing his early engines. And I'd also met the person who'd worked on doing the cats for CryptoKitties. And we did a little collaboration where we tried to resurrect dead companies uh, from the 2001 uh, Web 1 crash and kind of rebirth them as AI-generated logos. And then people would kind of collect them, pay for them, and then be in a kind of resurrected company. And for me, I found that have has an interesting tension, tension because AI is kind of trained on the internet as we know it. So it was sort of the internet remembering itself and rebirthing itself with a new kind of consumer model or something like that. And that was my first step into kind of like making a truly NFT project, you know. Kia ora, ko Duncan Grieve talking uh, I'm just taking a little break to talk to you about a big project that we've got coming next year. It's called What's Eating Aotearoa and it is going to be a very long running uh, exercise in 2024 where we look at kai, look at food and what what its role is in our society in a really kind of broad and, and multifaceted way. Uh, it's going to be deep. Like we're, we're, we're doing long form. We're spending a lot of time with this, um, this stuff because it is so central to our lives and this commodity, which, you know, the, this country makes so much of has become really expensive. It's, uh, it sort of really impacts people's lives. It's a, it's a stressor. It's also a source of joy and culture. And we have always kind of published a bunch on food next year. We really want to um, make it a huge thread that runs throughout the year. To do that uh, is going to cost us money um, and, you know, like there's, there's a huge amount of resource that goes into a, a project at the scale that we are envisaging. And as a result, we're doing a Pledge Me drive. It's the only the second one we've ever done and the first since 2016. And we're basically, we're asking for money from our, our audience. So if you're a member, you know, would would love it if you could could give us a bit more. If you're not, this is a, an awesome awesome way to to sort of support the spin off. Um, even if you can't do so regularly, maybe chip in here. The really cool thing is that it's not just a you know that you, you don't just give, you also get. There's a whole array of different kind of rewards on there. Some of which are already sold out. Uh, one of which is uh, as, a, as a podcast hosted by me, which can totally be like a corporate thing too. It's it's kind of a bargain if you view it that way. So, if, you know, basically there's, there's a whole bunch of different rewards. They're really, really fun. They're extremely spinoff. Um, and yeah, so if you go to the spinoff.co.nz forward slash pledge me, uh, you'll be able to kind of see what it is we're about and what you can get for your money. I think as of writing, we're roughly 60% of the way there. But, you know, to get, that last push because the whole way Pledge Me works is you either 
uh, get everything if you get to 50 grand or, or you get nothing if you don't. Um, so, you know, you're, if you're a regular consumer of the spin-off, you're probably sick of hearing about this, but we're going to keep talking about it because we are desperate to do this work. And as of right now, we aren't at that number. I know it's a really hard time, but if you've been sort of wavering or thinking you'll get to it, please, uh, you know, run, don't walk to, to a digital device and, and see if you can make a pledge to, to support us to do this. So that's the spinoff.co.nz forward slash pledge me to help support what's eating Aotearoa. G- given the, the sort of loathing that there was for uh, NFTs around that time and it certainly escalated subsequently, did did people, you know, who were sort of in that camp, what what did they make of you sort of participating in that world? Yeah, I, I always, I think I, uh, <laughs> I raised suspicion on all sides, you know. Um, so I think the people that were um, really true NFT heads and, you know, uh, were thinking that people was, you know, showing the way forward in, in progressive art and there was a whole new economy emerging. Some of them got my interest, understood my kind of context-rich application of the technology, um, and others were like, well, this is super complicated. Why would you bother doing something like that? It's anyway not going to be so successful commercially. And, I mean, that's the other thing about NFTs uh, that I think one of the things that people outside of that world dislike a lot is value and price are very closely aligned, right? So if something's expensive, it's good. And Mm. in the kind of previous art world, there'd been a kind of a... A hesitation to say that directly, right? Um, in the museum art world, something can be cheap but still have a high lot of critical value. You can you can make an artwork that doesn't sell, that can never sell, maybe like an ephemeral performance, mm. and it's considered to be valuable nonetheless. Whereas in the NFT world, if it's if it's not financially valuable, it's really worthless. So uh, yeah, I, I think I pushed a few buttons uh, moving in that direction. Also, I think foregrounding the idea of a crash uh, at the moment of a of a bubble peak was potentially not. The friendliest thing to 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 send to the community there was prescient, though. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you know, I saw it. I saw it coming. It was it was bound to come. I guess everybody sees it coming, but when you're really, you know, looking up only, it's very annoying to. <laughs> yeah, if you're hodling. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah. so before we get too <laughs> like into the weeds, yeah, yeah did, like, I wondered if you could kind of step back. I've been writing a little bit lately about the the sort of existential despair some people in kind of pop music feel at on some level becoming user-generated content right um economy people without ever wanting that growing up with that with that in mind yeah uh and and that the the fundamentals of the economic basis of of music outside of sort of god tier artists are, are pretty uh, pretty unpleasant. You know, do you want to kind of just speak briefly about what the overall impact of technology has been on on the the art world? Like, yeah, yeah, like like how how how's everyone doing? Yeah, uh, it's it's very much more competitive than it used to be. It's always been a very competitive field, I guess, like music. Um, I also have to say, there's in my little world, uh, my my kind of sub art world, there's a lot of crossover with musicians. Uh, Somebody that exists in both worlds um, is a project, um, uh, a couple called uh, Holly Herndon and Matt Dryhurst. They're like friends of mine, and they think about these issues in the music world and the art world a lot. And, uh, for example, they they focus a lot on training uh, training sets and, and how people get included in AI systems or not and can be compensated for their own 
creative labor in uh, in in those training set uh, worlds, and that's both as a visual artist and as a kind of a musician, right? So, what happens if somebody brings out a song sounding like you? What happens if uh, if you generate it, uh, some something in the style of an artwork that where somebody else has made the, the the content? So they're like building projects where you can kind of track whether you've been in a training set, and you can even block training sets uh, scraping up your data. So I think these things are, are front of mind for for creative people, especially digital digitally working people. Uh, in the museum art world, I think the phenomenon has affected the way popularity and, and um, reputation grows, right? So uh, visibility in Instagram, followers in, in that kind of context makes very fast, um, quick uh, success stories, particularly of work that looks great on the internet, you know, so uh, abstract painting had a bump. Now figurative painting has a bump. P painting's back in a really big way uh, in terms of the economy. And and also uh, galleries are finding it harder to have those small boutique stores. There's larger um, galleries that have a lot of services and are able to kind of put capital behind um, certain artists and they're kind of consolidating. So uh, it, it's very much the winner takes it all economy is also reflected even in something that feels more offline. Um, I think in relation to these economies that are, are more kind of like uh, contingent on the internet, if that makes sense. It does. I mean, and then let's go, go from going very broad. Let's go very narrow. Yeah. Like how, how does, how, do, how are you doing? Cause <laughs> it seems to me, you know, without knowing as much as I should, you do things which require phenomenal amounts of research. Some of them are <laughs> almost deliberately unwieldy to the point of being, if not unsaleable, like certainly like how to say there's a huge amount of, uh, resource goes into the creation of them you get your you seem to be determined to, to follow this path wherever it leads like you know what you're sort of fixated on this thing which is uh you know our governing reality but you know also part of it too like how's, how's it going it's actually going pretty good. Um, I mean, again, I, I forged my own path, and I think a lot of artists do along their way. They kind of find their little homes, you know, and I have many communities and, and kind of many conversations that I'm a part of. I like to make big, crazy things that look really great in physical museum spaces. I really love objects. I love texture. I love color. I love, you know, these kinds of things. I also like to make work that's informed, right, that feels like it's related to now uh, so that people go in and they're like, yes, this is an art gallery, but this is speaking about the contemporary experience, right? Um, and weirdly, some of the bigger, crazier things are some of the things that do better for me commercially. Like uh, it's, it's, you know, some people really want ambitious things, some big collections and big museums. That's exactly what they're after. Um, and uh, actually, sometimes when I kind of scale down, I think, oh, maybe I should make a painting now um, because that's a more kind of sane thing to do. Uh, these are the things that sometimes uh, are a little bit more slow to move. Because I think, I think the reason for that is that um, in the art world, the business model is like the high end of the luxury market, right? Like it's either a museum or an institution or a very wealthy individual paying a lot of money for one thing, right? And they want that one thing then to be amazing, right? They, they don't want like a okay thing. They want the best thing, you know? So I feel like um, the excitement and attention you get from doing something really uh, great, um, something even maybe difficult to achieve, um, has a kind of a sense of um, power that those sorts of buyers are kind of more tend to be more attracted to. You know what I mean? Um, in terms of those sorts of buyers and, and you know, thinking about individuals more than institutions and then also the the sort of tech founders who you become kind of friendly with or, or at the very least come to know, Yeah. 
how do they respond to the the fact that your work can at times be read as a, as a fairly trenchant critique of some aspects of what they built their houses on, or, or at least made their <laughs> made the money that's bought their houses on? Yeah, uh, I think it, it. This is a bit of an individual to individual thing. You know, sometimes I've made projects uh, where people get very prickly and they don't like the attention and they don't appreciate the the, the feedback. Um, you know, I, I go into making a project about a particular entrepreneur or a company because I think they're important, because I think people are, you know, experiencing things that uh, like cultural feelings and uh, are being generated from that source. And so I think um, I think to the right viewer, that is a sort of recognition of, of how important I'm taking their voice to be, let's say. Um, so some uh, founders and, and some companies are like quite interested to see uh, somebody like me take their work seriously in a cultural field, right? Because often these people are very much in their lane. They're making new products. They're building the future. That's that's where they see themselves. Um, and, and there's different metrics to that than cultural resonance sometimes, right? Like you can make a really powerful company and maybe it has zero cultural re- you know, resonance um, and, and maybe somebody else sets out to do that and by accident it becomes a kind of a, a, a cultural signifier of something else, you know? Um, at the moment I'm working on a piece about Palmer Lucky, the the former founder of um, uh, of Oculus Rift, who then went on to found a company called Anderol, which is named after the Lord of the Rings sword, um, and that's a VR defense company, right? And that's starting, even though it's kind of only has a client as the Department of Defense in the U.S., that's something that has kind of gathered, uh, I think, cultural significance beyond its business significance. Do you know what I mean? And I think some people who are in that position find what I do in that way fascinating, and some of them find it really annoying. You know? Yeah. The Fold is brought to you by O Media, making brands unmissable and public spaces better across Aotearoa, with over 4,000 out-of-home advertising sites nationwide across both street furniture and retail centres. I'm super grateful to O Media for enabling us to make unmissable connections with Kiwis. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. So let's talk about a few of the the sort of companies or individuals that you have kind of played with uh, over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe start with our famous compatriot Peter Thiel. <laughs> yeah. uh, t- tell me what what you did there and how that went. Well, Peter's. You know, I'd been making when I started to make. Uh, let me start at the beginning. I think um, I made a show about Peter Thiel in 2017. I made it here in Auckland. Um, and I made it for Auckland, right? So I often do shows in particular places. That's another thing about making sculpture. It's in a room in a place, right? So there's a kind of context to it. And um, and I knew Peter's work pretty well uh, by 2017 because, as you mentioned, I'd been looking at the context for a long time. And Peter's thoughts are very influential in business, right? They're just really – he's one of the kind of – I would say towering intellectuals of the. Yeah. Of, of I've read Zero to One. It's, exactly. it's kind of an amazing book. Exactly. And, and if you divorce everything else from him. Right. And and Zero to One literally was sitting on 
founders tables as I visited uh, technologists all over the world from China to Berlin to California whatever you know um, so I knew of his work really well and then of course this amazing thing happened where suddenly he became involved in things here because he wanted to move here because he bought property here he was all over the newspaper and this is sometimes a trigger for me um, something that's already on my radar becomes something that has a resonance beyond uh, just me being obsessed with it so I was like great I'm doing this show in 2017 I'm going to make that about Peter I'm going to make that about the resonance that it has with New Zealand. I'm going to make that about his uh, background and his ideology. And I'm going to contrast that with some, you know, pro arguments and some kind of against arguments for his position. And so I made these board game pieces um, at Michael Lett Gallery. Um, Michael has a great space where there's a kind of a downstairs, like a dungeon-y downstairs. It's in a former bank, which is also a pretty crazy building. And then a kind of more like light-filled upstairs. And in the light-filled upstairs space, I made work um, that responded to uh, this book, um, uh, the New Zealand Project. Uh, is it called the New Zealand Project by uh, Max Harris? Max Harris, exactly. Um, and that was kind of an optimistic view, looking at kind of decolonial narratives and things like this. And downstairs, I made all these amazing kind of like board game things about Peter's world. So I made a Settlers of Catan kind of custom sculpture. I made a uh, a kind of dungeon like uh, custom sculpture after a game called Descent. Um, and I made a game of life sculpture and those were kind of like had little, yeah, texts in them and characters and Peter and his friends were in there and there was a lot of ideas around, yeah, that propagate from him and, um, opened that, no problem, uh, went back home to Germany and then, uh, a few weeks later I got a call from my gallerist from Michael saying, Hey, crazy thing happened. Peter dropped pie and, uh, he's really into the work and he, you know, uh, there's a, there's an opportunity to, uh, reflect on that, um, you know, in a different way. And so that was uh, that was interesting to me. It was very gratifying, the fact that um, my research had resonated with the subject matter that uh, that, I, that I'd come into contact with. Um, but, it's, of course, I'd never really expected that to happen. And um, and I also, like, it left me with some questions at the same time, you know. Yeah, yeah, I, I can imagine. I mean, he's, he's a really fascinating one of these, the small handful of people who feel like, kind of comic book villains who, who walk among us but also shape our world in, a, in pretty profound ways and you can't that they do also resist being overly reduced uh, another one which is you know very relevant to, to us is Kim.com slightly yeah. predates that yeah. uh, still rattling around <laughs> Toby Manhire was just uh, you know the, my colleague at the spin-off was saying he just got an email from Kim and that he's getting quite <laughs> conspiratorial, which is obviously a very <laughs> quite a predictable situation. Tell tell me about your relationship uh, there. S similar thing, yeah. It's you know so a couple of years earlier, 2013, I think um, I heard about the yeah you know, I think it's 12 his thing started right. Yeah, and I was saga. I was already overseas and I was watching a lot of content on his platform. You know, I was really using Mega like crazy. You know, because you couldn't get Netflix at that stage big consumer of content. It was the only way to do it. And, uh, and then, uh, then again, it hit the press that the guy who founded that company that I was using every day was, uh, you know, in this very spectacular arrest uh, in Auckland. I was like, well, this is too good to be true. So I, I looked at the indictment list. I often, I often work from documents. I, I get really inspired by documents. And you go, you go a few layers deeper than like a, a typical kind of news journalist would even encounter. I mean, I love news journalists actually because they often lead me to like little nuggets that I can start with. I'm always looking for like a relic that has some kind of tension to it. And and actually, I followed this incredible Wired article uh, that was a deep dive into Kim after that happened, and that 
led me to this. Uh, I mean, also the Herald reporting at the time was amazing, I have to say. David Fisher. Yeah, that was amazing. And he was so present in the media here. It was just like, I actually collected the newspapers and made little paintings on them every day. It was super he was, accessible. I mean, you know, I've yeah. been to his house. Most a lot of any, any journalist who wanted to go to his house in a particular era was it. going to his house. That's amazing. Anyway, but so I, I, I eventually found the indictment list of stuff that they took off him in the arrest. And I was like, wow, this reads like a kind of a list of incredible objects. <clears throat> it's almost like the court system had curated Kim's collection. And I was like, bang, there's an idea, you know, like, I want to see that show, you know. Yeah. So I made these kind of knockoff versions of his collection where I kind of borrowed, bought and stealed like every kind of version that I could to try and always present everything on that list, you know. And there were like 60 bank accounts. I opened some fake bank accounts. I printed out some documents. Um, I, uh, you know, he had a lot of cars. I often borrowed cars from local dealerships where I would make these exhibitions. Uh, he had artists that he collected, which were named. I borrowed from those artists uh, as well, like other works uh, that I could get my hands on. It was really a weird thing, but an incredible thing to do. And every time I walked into an iteration of this show, I was like, wow, this says something about culture, you know, as well as about New Zealand, as well as about technology. And I, I kind of felt I was making the kind of low quality streaming versions of his collection. I was say, it feels like a degraded <laughs> yeah. JPEG. Yeah, exactly. So that, that, was the, that was the core of that. And again, at the time I made a version of that in, in Wellington. Um, so I made it at, 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 the, um, at the university gallery uh, the, 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 at the, uh, uh, in Wellington. And at the time, uh, I think Michael again reached out to Kim's people and said, hey, you know, this is happening. Um, Kim was keen to keep his distance at that time. Interesting. Yeah, That's he not, wasn't not very Kim. So again, that he wasn't keen to get involved in that. So again, Peter was really interested. Kim was not. You know. Well, that that sort of actually leads naturally into another sort of thing that I'm curious to talk about because part of his desire for distance at that time might have been the sort of general uh, legal status of, of of this kind of possibly case that he was wrapped up in. You're also, you know, when you're making these works, you know, you've, you've uh, uh, worked with a lot, you know, with, with Amazon and, and kind of some of its, uh, you know, future plans that never quite came, <laughs> came off, yeah. uh, potentially, thankfully. But fundamentally, there's incredibly wealthy people, often super vain and used to having a huge amount of control over their image, and you're using some of their stuff, um, and we'll talk more more about that with your with your new work optimism um, to to kind of say things about them that they might not like mm. has there been litigation how how has the legal kind of status of, of what you do yeah. kind of uh, run good point i mean there has only ever been one kind of concrete issue that i've had and that was around that time actually um, and it was it's a complicated one because so I I made a show about Samsung uh, in 2014 and I read a actually a Bloomberg article a fantastic Bloomberg article about um, about uh, the training process for executives uh, at um, at Samsung and the history of their kind of core narrative and I was super inspired by that it was a show that was in Frankfurt and. Uh, Samsung in the mid-90s declared a kind of more serious move towards the global market by making a declaration, like kind of like a declaration of war, called the Frankfurt Declaration. And the, the CEO at the time flew all of his executives from Korea to Frankfurt um, and kind of like had, a, had, had this Frankfurt Declaration. And 
they then made a kind of a replica of the hotel room that they made the declaration in back in Korea. And I was like, well, this is such an amazing object. I want to see that and I want to make a version of that. So I made my own Frankfurt declaration room uh, at a museum in Frankfurt. And um, and because the, the the Samsung family actually collect, so they, they, they're big in the art world, they have actually kind of quite a serious private museum in, in, in Korea. Um, I reached out through friends and said, hey, can I have access to this executive training facility? I'd love to see what this room actually looks like. I got a very hard no with that request. <laughs> um, and then I got a cease and desist. And then I engaged my first intellectual property lawyer and said like, hey, what are the risks of doing this? Like, am I really going to have a problem if I make this exhibition. And uh, the intellectual property lawyer gave me two kind of like tips, which I've since then gone by. Um, uh, what would the narrative be <laughs> for Samsung if they sued you? Um, which would be, we perceived together that would generally be negative, um, that they wouldn't want to draw attention to the thing more than it already existed. Um, so that would be making them more unlikely to sue me because it would come a story by them doing it. Um, and also, were they likely to be able to get anything that they wanted out of me other than that, like money, for example? And um, obviously, Samsung is a multinational, very wealthy corporation. I was a young artist, not exactly starving, but also I didn't have a huge buffer back then. Um, so we assessed it low risk. A uh, couple of... Uh, very Samsung senior dudes looked like they came to the opening of that show. <laughs> uh, and one of my uh, friends who was working with me on the project, who is also South Korean, spoke to them in Korean and said, like, hey, what do you what do you guys think of uh, of the show? And they, they said they were confused uh, and, then, and then left. You know? <laughs> I mean, that's so, a win. Yeah, that, for me, that was a win. Yeah. Um, that's, that's really interesting. Even as you speak, it, it sort of points to some of the similarities between art and journalism. You know, we've got this kind <laughs> of... Uh, Fair use and and commentary type protections, which are an analogous to, to right. some of the, those which you operate under. I guess let, let's actually talk about about optimism, mm -hmm. um, its foundations, its intentions, mm -hmm. and yeah, what what what's it all about? So I'm making a show which opens on Friday, the first of December, um, at the Auckland Art Gallery, which is a new commission, um, and it's a big thing for me. Uh, I did the New Zealand Pavilion for Venice last. This is the this is the next biggest thing I've done here. Um, and uh, it's inspired by the prominence of the emerging space industry in New Zealand. Um, like, again, I often look for things that are reaching a kind of cultural peak in terms of business. And I've, I've been watching Rocket Lab for a long time. I think they're a really, really interesting company culturally. Um, and, you know, I think just this week with the change of government, there's been a space minister. Uh, That's correct. Uh, you know, and uh, I understand that it's a growth industry in New Zealand. It sort of reminded me of the kind of film moment with Lord of the Rings, where, where a kind of conflation of kind of national interests and hopes uh, comes with a new economy in a way. Um, and a lot of uh, kind of popular support, but also a lot of government backing for an industry. Um, so I've been looking at um, making something about Rocket Lab, because I think it's a really, truly outstanding company. Um, and uh, I'd been looking into their patents. Um, that's one place I looked. So I told you, Kim.com, I looked at his kind of lawsuit. That was an interesting kind of relic that I found in there. I've made a bunch of sculptures that you alluded to also after patent designs, because I think patents are really interesting things. They're, they're you know, uh, particularly technology companies patent a lot. 
uh, of any idea they might have in the future because it becomes property yeah, that the they can... potential future paths exactly. are revealed through patent. Exactly, because it's, it's kind of weirdly open source, right? You, you, you can claim ownership over idea by making it public. And so I often look at companies' patents when I'm looking at them, um, and I found some amazing objects that have been patented by Peter Beck and, um, and later Rocket Labs. And um, they were just parts of fuel systems, so kind of, you know... Uh, kind of technical things, but the drawings of them looked to me like flying saucers. You know, they were very evocative of space megastructures that I'd kind of seen. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of NASA and kind of NASA's work in the 1960s, and there are these evocative drawings that were produced by artists like Don Davis in the 1960s and 70s for NASA, imagining space colonies. And there's a, there's a, there's a kind of form called an O'Neill uh, cylinder which is like a donut-shaped thing that spins and then kind of creates a, a sort of a, a an artificial gravity by spinning. Um, and then you have these amazing kind of curving landscapes inside them, um, which are very spectacular when they're illustrated and I think captured the minds of uh, many, many people over many decades already. Um, and I thought, wow, these objects look like they could have those O'Neill cylinders inside them. And I was like, I'm going to make sculptures after these drawings of these objects and I'm going to hang them in this giant atrium in the Auckland Art Gallery as if they're kind of flying saucers. Um, and then I'm going to build an augmented reality app in which you can look at the kind of exploded, expanded objects and you can see different settler groups living in kind of space colonies on these engine parts, basically. You know, um, so, so that's, that's the idea. I was thinking a lot about tensions around people building the future. Uh, I'm really interested in a number of companies. One of the companies I'm really interested in at the moment is a venture capital company called uh, Andreessen Horowitz. Um, they're one of the biggest investors in technology in California. And um, they recently published uh, a manifesto on optimism, you know, uh, an, an optimist yeah, manifesto. Which could be sort of read as a critique of the, the way that technology is being covered and considered by, you know, the balance of society in a way. I think the... the from my understanding, people that make uh, companies like that are not very happy with the media. You know, they no. really don't like the New York Times. They really don't. You know, they they feel they get a hard hard deal. Uh, well, and I think some of that is a correction to the fact that they that uh, there was such kind of ill-considered coverage of the likes of, um, you know, Facebook in, in the early years and it just the same way as like we didn't know what to do with Trump in 2016. Right. There is a sort of a correction, potentially an overcorrection. Like mm. I'm, I have, you have to be open to that idea. Right. But uh, yeah, and then, and then you've seen them. You know, A16Z, Anderson Horowitz tried to build a media company called Future, which is now being shut down because it's a hard business. You it's know? a hard business. Yeah. Yeah. So 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 all this is bottled up in the show. Exactly. So I, I named it kind of uh, in the spirit of that optimism. I thought also optimism about living in the future, living. You know, if you space is a bit of a trope with uh, with a certain kind of founder, Elon Musk, uh, Jeff Bezos. These very visible founders often talk about living off-world, you know, going beyond a planetary species. And it feels also connected to, and this is where Peter Thiel comes in, like the sort of seasteading movement, there's this idea that we are overly constrained and that when you go into another galaxy, you know, you kind of slough some of that off and, and optimise purely. Exactly. And, and kind of secessionist movements in general are also very present in those communities. Um, so I, this summer I, for example... Uh, spent some time at a place called Zuzalu, which was a, uh, a village that was taken over, a kind of private village that was taken over by 
um, Vitalik Buterin, the founder of uh, Ethereum, Ethereum, yeah, um, co-founder, um, and uh, he sort of uh, you know made space for the a number of people to come and visit. Um, there was also a strong uh, contingent of people in the decentralized science movement. Uh, uh, and basically about dreaming up new states, uh, you know, new new ways where you can make jurisdictions outside of the existing ones so you can experiment in ways that are not restricted by state regulations, you know. And that's kind of a, yeah, like it's a mainstay for that conversation. I mean, Bitcoin itself, right, is a sort of extra, extra um, national currency, right? There's And, I, you know, that was one of the things I was always attracted to about the Internet, actually, myself being, in, being a migrant, you know, living in another country, I feel... German, but not. I feel New Zealand, but not. I also come from a country which was settled and, you know, is, has a whole lot of unresolved issues around settlement. So I felt the idea of being an international person was really compelling to me. Like, I like the idea of not being bound into a nation state formation. And and so I, I also had sympathies with these kind of secessionist ideas in a, in a way. Um, but yeah, the space has become, a, you know, one kind of giant uh, receptacle for all those fantasies, right? Um, and there's also interesting cultural histories that go all the way back to, you know, uh, kind of countercultural movements uh, in the U.S. Uh, you know, the, the hippies famously also left their society and kind of started private, you know, societies. Yeah, in, New in Zealand had a huge history of communes exactly. in the sort of seventies and eighties, some which of which was ended state, really badly. State funded, actually, at interestingly, times. yeah, at times. So, so I, I you know, and the, there's a whole kind of history of uh, of dreaming of other worlds, right? And I think space is one of those things that kind of captures that sentiment, which is. On the one hand, technological, but also very much cultural, I think, you know. Yeah, while you're talking, I'm also kind of imagining that this kind of ambivalent, interested, potentially even kind of, uh, well, certainly open, let, let's put it that way, uh, perspective on Rocket Lab, which is a, you know, a, a company that, you know, our, our reporting has, has pointed to their close ties with like Lockheed Martin and um, the US Department of Defense. Mm -hmm. the, the idea of, uh, you know, something that can be read as a, not, if not a celebration, that it's certainly as, as could, can be read admiringly about this kind of, you know, this com company which a lot of people have you know, pretty particular opinions on happening in the Auckland Art Gallery space, which is, you know, more typically associated with a, a, a very different worldview. Mm. Have you, has there been any kind of rumblings or, or are you anticipating that there might be some kind of prickliness about what you're doing and where you're doing it? I mean, I hope not. You know, I think, uh, I think, something like Rocket Lab is something to consider culturally. This is what I mean, you know, and I think that art is my favorite art deals with the contemporary world and how it feels. And so I think the Auckland Art Gallery is like a perfect venue for us to kind of be able to take kind of Rocket Lab out of the the space of like a business world and business coverage and think about it as a kind of cultural signifier. You know what I mean? And so, uh, you know, I hope that people come in there, they see these objects, you know, I mean... They're copies of patents, which I think is also really interesting. So they're about property in a way um, and thinking about who owns what. Um, they're also – there's different visions in this AR for different worlds. And some of those worlds I think will feel close to some people and others will feel more distant from them. Um, but I guess the proposition is that one can design lots of different kinds of worlds. And I think, uh, you know, there's a lot of discussion in the cultural sphere in New Zealand about – what kind of culture we should be supporting, uh, what has a kind of legitimacy. Um, and so I think hopefully it could be a capture for that type of conversation as well. Um, and I think it's a kind of a service that uh, 
that I can try and reframe some of the energy that goes into both uh, the kind of dedication to building very successful, interesting businesses like Rocket Lab and kind of capturing some of the tensions around what that touches societally. You know what I mean? I do, I do. Uh, I really enjoyed the, this conversation, but I have to bring it to an end. I w- wondered if, if we could sort of finish on something which where I'm curious about to, to get a perspective from you and that, you know, I really enjoy the sort of, and, and think it, it's it's almost the only way to kind of properly conceive of technology is with a, a level of ambivalence. Mm-hmm. But equally, if you look longitudinally against some sort of set of KPIs um, <laughs> for our society, some of them are, don't feel that great right now. Yeah. I, I'm, and I can't, it's always hard to disentangle your own personal feelings from what what a what a dispassionate assessment of society if such a thing were possible would where where that would get you. But I'm feeling a little doomy. Um, <laughs> and some of it I feel is that because basically technology, you know, my my general theory of it, uh, you know, is that it came along during at a, at a time, yeah, you know, this particular form of technology came along. In the aftermath of the 80s, which was this great period of deregulation and a sort of suspicion of any kind of restraint on on uh, sort of private corporations, and as a result, those two things, which was almost an accident of history, mm-hmm. uh, if you know, it, it's meant that the regulatory impulse, which had existed through, you know, we, we've sort of uh, throughout. You know, our, our sort of the the 20th century, we would sort of something would get a little bit out of whack, and we put a law, and it wouldn't always be perfect. Um, but that was the the general idea was that we would just try and muddle along to somewhere that that felt like it kept certain things in tension that don't feel like they've been in tension. In fact, it feels like we have just been sort of passive recipients of whatever technologists built right. um, over the past 30 or so years. And because of the pace and velocity at which it moves and because of how complex it is, your your lawmakers are really, who are also operating in that environment uh, in the world that technology built, really struggle to know yeah. how to how to behave towards it. You're seeing little seeds of that changing with sort of uh, Lena Khan in, in the US and, and uh, with the, the EU's kind of approach to regulation. But do you, A, do you believe it's a problem this kind of regulatory void and, and BD what what's your sense of where this is heading or ends yeah great questions I mean you know I live in the EU one of the most kind of regulatory friendly legal environments I think globally for technology like the EU Parliament spent a lot of time trying to like figure out what they should restrict um, and I'm sad to say that they often get it kind of wrong yeah, you know okay. uh, and that's really it's but it's a tough job I mean you've identified exactly the problem right the people who build it know best in some ways what it's going to do and other people have to kind of play catch up and there's a kind of uh there's a business sense to that because you know uh, you make money off knowing more than other people right that's kind of like a basic business uh, strategy but then it's also yeah uh, i think also people building things often don't want to um disrupt things in a bad way they want they want society to continue as well and i think sam altman is a really interesting um example of this right where he 
is sort of seemingly on the one hand building something but is also very hesitant about it, has been worried about, uh, you know, what AI can do to society, jobs, et cetera, et cetera, and in in the U.S. courts, you know, like... And the connection between him and Sam Bankman-Fried and the effective altruism movement feels, yeah. feels like the classic kind of territory you explore as well. Yeah, very, very cozy. I mean, I guess at a, at a zoomed-out answer for myself, um, I guess I always have to ask myself, like, would I rather exist in a world with, you know, the consumer tech and the internet that I experience now or not. And I often come up with that I would rather exist in a world with the internet. Um, I think, uh, I don't think there's ways to kind of like uh, do an objective check and balance on those types of uh, developments. And I also think that um, it's very hard to stop even if we didn't want them. So even if you had a kind of like fully tuned regulatory environment, you still couldn't anticipate some of the kind of challenges that come up with um, with building new technologies and reframing the environment. And I think that it's also, you know, it's also kind of a human thing. The world is a dynamic place. Uh, life has changed. Um, and, uh, you know, if you listen to those conservative voices who are at the helm of building uh, those things, people like Mark Andreessen, um, they say, yeah, like, how do you say, well, we want uh, fire, but we don't want AI, you know? I, I mean, it's a, it's it's sort of a uh, you can pick holes in that argument as well, but in some ways, I, I can I can follow. Right? How do you know what something's going to be until you've made it? That's right. I, I, which I, I totally get. There's just a a sense that to regulate at all at times is is uh, you know an impulse that should be kind of should be restrained. Which yeah, I don't know. It's a it's a complicated one. But look, I've I've so enjoyed the, this this conversation. I'm really looking forward to seeing the work uh and yeah thank you so much for coming up here simon thank you duncan i'm such a fan of the spin-off a uh, fan of your work so it's uh, it's you know a long time list of first time caller situation yeah, yeah. <laughs> so i appreciate that yeah. cool. thank you That was The Fold, brought to you by our partners at O Media, making brands unmissable and public spaces better across Aotearoa. Huge thanks to O Media for sponsoring this episode of The Fold and enabling us to make unmissable connections with Kiwis. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.